0: Welcome to the Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Congress is about to take a stab at small reforms to Dodd-Frank. And once the dust settles on the CRAPO bill, as it's colloquially known, it's probably going to be a while before we hear from them again on the matter. So for the foreseeable future in financial regulation, we're probably looking at regulatory activity at the federal regulatory agencies. So what can we expect from them? Maybe more importantly, what should we expect from them? And what issues should be at the top of their agenda? To answer those questions, we've got a great panel today. First up, J.W. Verrett, scholar here at Mercatus Center and a professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He also spent a couple of years on a tour of duty with the House Financial Services Committee as their chief economist. Good afternoon, J.W. Chad, good to see you. We've also got Brian Knight, director of our financial regulatory program, who's been described as a, quote, wellspring of advice on fintech and brisket. Good afternoon, Brian. Good afternoon, Chad. Last and certainly not least, in our third chair, we're joined by Rachel Witkowski, reporter at The American Banker. Our listeners may be most familiar with Rachel for her investigative reporting on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thanks for crossing the Potomac for us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And I'm just going to go ahead and start with the elephant in the room. I mentioned the Crapo bill briefly. It's what most folks in the FinReg world are talking about this week. Uh, J.W., I know you've written briefly uh, on this bill in particular. Give me your 30-second take on the good, the bad, and the ugly.
2: It's a modest bill. I tried to think of the right analogy to describe how modest it is, but they were all inappropriate. So I'll just leave it at that it's a modest (laughs) bill. Much of it's a good step in the right direction. Get Congress used to the idea that Dodd-Frank is not wholly writ. A lot of good small changes there like Extending the exam cycle from 12 months to 18 months. It's not going to change the world. Few things that are big in there, changing enhanced Federal Reserve supervisory authority so that some of the regional banks aren't hit by it, that were hit by it before. There's one piece of it that I just frankly don't agree with, which is the change in how they define a certain type of asset you have to hold, basically sort of blessing government debt, state and local government debt as less risky. I would get the Fed out of doing that altogether, by the way, in favor of strong capital like my colleague, Steph Miller, proposes. But this piece of it is is a little troubling. But overall, a good bill, very modest. Get people used to the idea that you can reform financial regulation and the world won't end.
0: Brian, how wrong is JW?
3: No more wrong than normal. Uh, <laughs> but the slightly more pessimistic take on that is that this is kind of a wasted opportunity if it even gets over the finish line right because the house has to pass out the bill and they are making noise about adding some things like again relatively small bore relatively uncontroversial things but you get the impression that the political environment in the senate is this is what how they can hold the coalition together and any change might split it apart but the the more pessimistic thing is it is it is relatively weak tea and while jw is right that it's it's good that it's good to kind of break people of the habit that Dodd-Frank is holy writ. The other thing is they can say they've reformed Dodd-Frank now. So the next time someone comes along and says, hey, I, you know, we should reform this part of Dodd-Frank. Like, we've already reformed Dodd-Frank, silly, like moving on. So I, my concern is that if this moves forward. We're not going to see Congress really taking up any sort of FinReg issues for a while because like, well, we've done that. We've spent the capital on that. We're exhausted. Let's move on to something else.
0: Rachel, you were nodding a couple times there. Did you want to jump in?
1: Sure. I mean, without taking sides one way or the other, I think the Republicans in the Senate know that they have to be able to pass something that Democrats will get on board with. So it's going to be modest was a great definition of it. Um, That's probably the only thing, if any, that's going to get through is the basic bare bones, which I find interesting because when the Trump administration came on board, there was so much talk about deregulation. And I know in the House, they really wanted to revamp Dodd-Frank further, but that's just not going to happen in reality. And it'll be much harder if they wait until the next election season. So
0: So you teed us up there by mentioning the administration. I'm going to just throw a jump ball for anybody who wants to kind of get us started here. I mentioned earlier, looking at next steps, a lot of this is probably going to be in the regulatory agency's wheelhouse. Um, So which regulators matter? Uh, What issues should they be thinking about? Where are you all focused right now?
3: Well, you know, all the regulators matter if you're regulated by them. So you know the Fed obviously. Well, okay, let's back up for a second. Like one of the things that was interesting about Dodd Frank, and you could argue bad about Dodd Frank, is it gives the regulators a ton of autonomy and a, a ton of discretion. Because, well, okay, they're the experts. They're they're the you know the eyes on the on the ground, and we we don't want to step in their way. Well, okay, there are sort of good government arguments against that because they're the unelected fourth branch of government. But also, you, you're going to see the problem of regulators different regulators using their discretion in different and perhaps inconsistent ways. I mean we see that with Mulvaney at the CFPB where you know I I would certainly argue that Mulvaney is moving the agency in the right direction in a lot of ways because the agency came out so incredibly progressive that a lot of this is just regression to the mean. It's just moving back to sort of mainstream American politics but there's no guarantee that that, you know, Mulvaney is going to get it all right or is going to build a durable, you know, policy stand and or or whoever his successor is if they when and if they name a permanent director. And then the next person who comes in, like the the CFPB director in a hypothetical like Kamala Harris administration, is going to be pretty different. And they're going to use that discretion in a different way. and it's going to swing back the other way. And so what we're going to have is, like, Four-year swings, potentially, and that's probably – regardless of what your sort of preferred policy outcomes are, the swinging is suboptimal. There are two
2: things I'm watching, and I agree with Brian that it's interesting that one of the things Dodd-Frank did was it gave the sort of discretion and opportunity to a Republican administration to change Dodd-Frank. The regulators have the discretion. That means you can change. You can move the needle in huge ways That's a good point. when the administration changes. That's what happens when you give discretion to the administrative state. Don't forget, Justice Scalia started agency deference because he liked Reagan administration deregulation. He had more pre- principled reasons, but it also happened to help Reagan administration deregulation. I'm watching two things. I'm watching the CFPB. I'm working on a Maybe an article, maybe an op-ed, maybe a comment letter to the CFPB, but something generally under the idea I have. Okay. If you're listening, don't want to ruin the, the paper for when it comes out, but the key, the number one thing for CFPB reform, regulatory contracts. It's a brand new idea. Nobody's thought of things this way. EPA's done this a little bit in some weird ways, but there's a case called US versus Windstar that holds the OTS. Back in the SNL crisis, the OTS tries to sell off some bad banks. It makes promises about how it's going to regulate in the future. Then the law changes. U.S. Court of Federal Claims comes down and says, boom, damages anyway. OTS, you promised. Regulation would be this way. You took the risk. The law would change. CFPB could enter into regulatory contracts with regulated parties that would resultant damages for those parties if CFPB changes under a future administration. And I'm talking about in legitimate ways that just narrow abuse of discretion in the future along the lines of sort of not going past the envelope that that the acting director is talking about. So look out for that, Chad. That's coming. I'm also watching Volcker. How are these agencies going to change Volcker together because five of them enforce it? If you can get all five agencies on the same page, that's harder to change in a subsequent administration. But yeah, the regulatory state is where all the action is right now.
1: I agree with the CFPB would be my number one. I also, the attitude has changed so quickly there, but you almost, they're the newest agency, right? So it's like watching a child grow and learn and try to capture all these different things that go on in their life. And and so you have this agency that started out with the attitude of, you know, okay, bank regulators, you didn't capture the financial crisis before it hit. So we're gonna do everything right. And you did everything wrong. And now there's a different perspective on. Now we have to revamp everything within the agency to to do it to our perspective under new leadership. So I'm really fascinated in how they're going to patch the relationships with the other agencies, especially if you you have so much change going on with all the agencies and FSOC Also, there's going to be all new leaders there right. uh, that have to look at systemic risk, and that's a huge task. It was before, it will be in the future, but how? How they decide to watch systemic risk is going to be key for our entire country and overseas.
3: To, to piggyback off that, I mean, one, one other thing that we're seeing in the Mulvaney uh, interregnum is that you had an agency it, that was like jealously hoarding power, and now it's trying to push it out. Right? It's going to the state AGs and saying, "Well, you know better than us. We, we will. We will. You know, trail behind you." It's going to the bank regulators and saying, "Well, the, you know, look, there's no reason we both need to supervise this bank." You supervise, and if something comes up, let us know, and and we'll get engaged. And so it's hard to tell how much of this is sort of just a a different political philosophy versus how much of this is an effort to establish norms so that when the CFPB comes out of this period, even if there's a more activist director, the norms are that it is a more humble agency because, you know, the state AGs and the other regulators have gotten reacquainted to to being primary – or what? And and the second question is is this ultimately a good idea or is this setting up for a pro- is this missing an opportunity to provide sort of durable reform because maybe the next director comes in and says yeah 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 you know what we're we're back we're still the, we're the dominant player everyone step aside again instead of maybe you know the argument I would make about the CFPB or one of the arguments I make about the CFPB is They should be doing more rulemaking, not less, right? But what they should be doing is defining the scope of their power via rulemaking rather than via enforcement, via consent order, via like how far can we push the court – how far will the court let us go? Instead, come in and say, Dodd-Frank gave us a ton of power. Due process demands that we let you, the regulated entities, know what we think this means ahead of time so that you know how you're bound. You can sue us over it if you think we got it wrong without – Without being in the middle of an enforcement action. And so we're going to go do rulemaking. And that's what I were it me. And it isn't. And no one has asked me, (laughs) Uh, you know, but that's the path I would I would try to go down is like, well, what does abusive mean? Well, let's let's do a rule. And even if we can't say what it is, we can certainly say what it isn't. We can provide safe harbor at least.
0: Brian, if I if I had a regulatory agency, I would ask you. I just I want you to know that.
2: Well, Brian is on the CFTC's advisory committee, that's so true. they go to him for advice. You, you
0: have been asked. That's true. With uh, well, the CFTC. CFTC. Yes. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Just by a different agency. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to. I guess first I should I should pause and and make sure that all of our listeners know when we say CFPB, we're talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, we're in alphabet soup world when it comes to federal regulatory agencies. Uh, but I think that's a one you can remember for the rest of this. Conversation conversation. It's probably going to come up again. I do want to bookmark systemic risk and Volker, which have come up a couple of times. But you mentioned, Brian, uh, talking about uh, state AG's role, the state attorneys general uh, and Mulvaney. And Rachel, you just wrote about this at the end of February. So I want to kick it back to you. Can you just kind of explain what Brian was talking about there? What's the relationship between the CFPB uh, and state attorneys general?
1: Yeah. So there was a rift last year and I guess previous years where the CFPB had went forward with enforcement actions that some of the state AGs did not agree with, in particular with tribal lenders, um, payday type lending. And so Mulvaney, when he um, was speaking at that conference, he said he was looking back at these cases. He's going through all the cases to see if they were justified and if they could actually win a case in court and he pulled out of that one because you know why would he take an action when the own the own state authorities disagree with it so i think he's trying to be more methodical about what he's doing with actions whether that's right or wrong you know we'll we'll see in the future but you know it was a very it was interesting because the previous director of the cfb was also an ohio state ag and mm-hmm. so i remember going to the other conferences where he spoke and everybody knew him, they liked him. And so I was really curious if Mulvaney would get the same reception. But I think because he went in saying, hey, guys, go ahead and proceed with what you're doing. Uh, If you need resources and help, we'll back you up, but we're not going to overstep Our bounds in working with you. And um, I remember just sitting in the back and and an audience member being like, oh my God, that was really good. Like, we like him, you know. And and there was some hesitancy by uh, some of the Democratic AGs, but for the most part, you know, he definitely charmed them and walked out there with a joke about, you know, drinking with an AG. And so he was really good at sort of easing his way in. um, Did he bring donuts? He did not bring us. <laughs> he didn't bring alcohol either. I thought maybe there would be beer afterwards. <laughs> missed opportunities since we talked all about around. beer, He opened with beer and margaritas. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think um, uh, he's trying to be more – he's trying to change the tone. I, I will say towards the end of Cordray's reign, he was trying to ease the relationship with the regulators because they did come in hard and strong. They weren't working together on exams. It was well known. And he was – I know they were trying to mend that. But I think with Mulvaney there, it's going to be a much faster shift towards working together.
0: So this is an important shift because I, I know that both Brian and JW have written on this kind of relationship between federal and state uh, governing entities when it comes to financial regulation, I mean, specifically fintech or financial technology. So do either one of you kind of want to jump on that topic and explore a little bit more? You know, we talked about maybe Congress isn't doesn't have a whole lot of work ahead of it, but federal <coughs> agencies do. Now it sounds like, well, maybe states are also in this mix. So, so what role do states play? What, sh- what role should they play?
2: Where states, just to, Brian's the expert. I just got a few lessons from state corporate law that I think we can try to use in state role in fintech. One of them is that this works best when a state that charters an entity has an incentive to enforce so that they... The enforcement is a value add to the value of the entity. This works worst when, let's say, for example, you have a long history of state AGs in a large state that have gone on to become governor and ran on their record suing, bringing questionable actions against really rich Wall Street people, <coughs> Spitzer, and – um <laughs> You're totally – it's totally an externality where you're just not internalizing the damage you're doing to the financial industry. So I would say this works best with a 50-state passporting system where Delaware or North Dakota or New York or whatever creates a state-chartered fintech firm. That state-chartered fintech gets to be regulated by one state. Everybody knows that one state regulates and that regulation stays within that one state. Other than some very basic consumer financial protection laws, maybe at the federal level, but nothing like what we see now. So preemption can help because preemption can help to foster a 50 state passporting system, but you got to internalize it with with matching chartering with enforcement. That's my key takeaway.
0: And, and Brian, I know you're chomping at the bit just to make sure we're all on the same page. When we talk about fintech firms. We're kind of talking about these financial institutions that are maybe a little nontraditional. A lot of them rely almost entirely or largely on the internet. They they might give out loans or they might look like banks or they might provide other financial services.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think for these purposes, the important thing is that they are not banks because if you ha- if you have a banking charter, federal law gives you a lot of capability to operate on a national level. Even a state-chartered bank, uh, under federal law, they can make loans on the basis of their home state interest law You know, uh, nationwide. The problem for these non-banks is, well, they don't have that, and so they have to go either state-by-state-by-state by state by state, or they have to go partner with a bank. And there are litigation and regulatory efforts to frustrate that partnership, and there, it creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of question about whether or not these, these products can move forward. And so I think JW is absolutely right. I mean, you know, but the challenge is, I think I am less, I am less optimistic about the possibility of the states doing it on their own. I think you are going to need, most likely, some sort of federal action. Now, the OCC has been talking about a charter. We'll see if that moves forward. That's a pure federal system. That is a nationally chartered bank. You don't necessarily need that, but you need. I think you're going to ultimately need something because even if all the states got together and agreed that we're going to, we're going to accept passporting. Let us, you know, sing kumbaya. Within a year or two, you're going to have firms in the state coming in and being like, look, we know we're good, but those guys across the border, they're monsters. Like, you really need to, like, I'm not saying keep them out. I'm just saying we need to hold them to a different standard. And over time, the standards are going to drift and you're going to be right back where you were. The the advantage of federal preemption or, you know, sort of federal preemption effectuating state law is – OK, look, you know, you can set up the law. You know, the, the states still have the incentive to compete on law because they want to come up with good law that people will want to use. But you don't they don't get to erect barriers to trade. Now, lest I come off as like totally anti state, there is another area in fintech where I think the states really could play a big role. And that is in the regulatory sandboxing thing. Right. You know, it's the cliche of laboratories of democracy, et cetera. And that's an area where you can have 50 different laboratories run a little bit different. And so long as all the customers are in the state and the company is in the state, you don't have to worry about another state coming and saying like, well, I don't care how you do it. That's a violation of our law and you're all going to jail. The challenge there then becomes, well, but there's still this federal overarching regulation. And that's something where I do think like, say, the CFPB could play a role in coming in and saying, look, if you are if you are doing something as part of a federal regulatory sandbox, if there are appropriate safeguards in place to make certain that the customers trying it out are being protected, we're not going to come after you, right? You can, we, we will defer to the state on this matter and that, you know, so you can have confidence and, you, you know, depending on the nature of the product, you may need to go get that from other entities as well, the DOJ or one of the banking regulators or something like that. But the CFPB has probably been the toughest nut to crack on that. And they're the ones who have the most sort of direct consumer protection power because in a sandbox situation, that's your concern, right? You're not concerned about systemic risk. These are all tiny little experiments. This is not going to blow up the world. You're not concerned about safety and soundness. Again, tiny little experiment. Your company shouldn't fail on the basis of it. Certainly not if you're a bank, right? If you're a startup and your company fails on the basis of the experiment, that's what startups do. Lesson learned. It's all about is the consumer going to get hurt? And, you know, because of a violation of the law. And so that's where the CFPB really could sort of do a major step in f- terms of furthering innovation.
0: I think it gives us a good opportunity to maybe shift back to federal regulators. The Office of the Comptroller, the Currency, or the OCC came up a couple of times. And Rachel, I know that that's one of the agencies that you, you cover in a lot of ways. So I'm just wondering, what's your take on either their relationship to fintech regulation or what are their other sort of priorities they're working on right now?
1: Well, the past comptroller of the currency, Thomas Curry, was the one who started to look at some sort of special purpose charter for fintech firms uh, to bring them into the banking system. And uh, that sort of seems to be sort of held off as we go into a new leadership with Joseph Otting. But from everybody that I've talked to has said, um, even though he hasn't talked a lot on it yet, that he will pursue it in some way. We just don't know what way. But there is this perception that all of the regulators that are coming into place right now are expected to come into place uh, would be friendlier to fintech. I don't know how that's going to play out. I haven't you know, gotten a whole lot of direction, but I, I do think the OCC, they had sort of started the biggest lead on a federal banking charter for fintech. Um, so it, be, it would behoove them to pick it back up, especially since they are the national bank regulator. It makes sense. But I also agree with Brian. A lot of these fintech companies in some way or another will be in touch with the consumer. So there's a lot of opportunity for the CFB to pick that up. I think they only have like one no action letter that they issued. And um, it's been quite a while, at least a year or two since they offered that. And they also have Project Catalyst. They had worked with a few companies. They have the people. They have the ability um, to also get in there. I just, um, you know, I think a lot of people are waiting to see what happens under the new leadership.
0: And what is uh, Project Catalyst?
1: Brian, you might want to help me out on this. Cause <laughs> uh, no, I mean go ahead. Oh, I was trying to, so it, it was basically, I. you know, it's been so long too. I feel like it's been three years and I've had like two different jobs since then. But This is like somebody um, asking
0: what blockchain is, right? Or like what Bitcoin is. Like there are a, a seven different descriptions or definitions you could give them.
1: Yeah. And there was, <laughs> I remember when Project Catalyst first came out, there were like three different concepts that they were trying to combine into it. But it was basically sort of just to work with more fintech-like companies on on things that they were doing. You know, they were trying to get more involved. I, I do know that they are, the companies that they've worked with that I've been talking to, there's still a communication going on, even under the new leadership. And the c is just basically like collecting data and collecting consumer data to figure out what these companies are doing, um, how this benefits consumers. So it was sort of, I, you know, without getting too much in the weeds, Project Catalyst became sort of like a hodgepodge of ideas that they put together in the end uh, to c- sort of foster innovation. But it's been like two or three years now, and there hasn't been a whole lot of word on it in a while. And I think only like three or four companies were involved at the time. So, you know, there were sort of things that were left hanging. And probably just because of so much else was going on. Um, I mean, even now Mulvaney is like completely restructuring enforcement and supervision, which are much larger departments, you know. So I, I think this has kind of been left a bit on the back burner. But, it, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, within this year, something would start to come out, I'd hope.
2: The skeptical way I've heard Operation Catalyst described by folks in the industry is the message was, come to us, tell us your plan. We cannot promise we will not use what you tell us against you in an enforcement action. We cannot guarantee that we'll be bound by any guidance that we give you. So it could be you jump in the sandbox and there's a giant bear trap underneath the sand right after you get there. So
0: there's there's maybe just a little bit of tension between industry and the regulators. Perhaps. And
2: that can change with tone at the top under a new administration for a little while. But- how do you make to make that sandbox successful? To make at at the CFPB to make Operation Catalyst successful? What I'm proposing is, again, this is one area where regulatory contracts, bound by the holding in U.S. versus Winstar is the way to go. These are the rules that will apply to you. We will apply them fairly. If we do not, go to the Court of Federal Claims and collect a check.
0: So we're back to Brian's earlier point about discretion's got its benefits, but maybe there are some. Some areas where the federal regulatory agencies could clarify some issues for uh, for innovators.
2: And
3: they could be bound by the rule of law. So, I mean, I think what we're going to have to see on the CFPB is to what extent is the change in the tone at the top basically you know, to, to, to be to – if you talk to the cynics, if you talk to the people who are really worried about Mulvaney, it's, look, he's smiling and saying nice dog while he looks for a big enough stick and he's going to gut the place because he just doesn't think it exists. All right. It should exist. <laughs> the – More the less cynical view that that may come out is that there's look, there's a positive vision for a CFPB. And our our, our colleague Todd Zwicky had a very nice op ed about this. Right. And I would argue there is a completely consistent sort of Trump. Conservative populist vision of the CFPB, which is basically like, look, you, the average consumer, know you know what's best for you. you know your life better than anyone else. It's our job to go after the people who are trying to prevent you from doing that because they're defrauding you, right? You know mm-hmm. we believe in markets. we believe that that people are make the best decisions if they know what they're getting themselves into, and it's our job to make certain that someone trying to lie to you gets got. And it's a perhaps a vision I'm workshopping this, right? So we've hold the right to change it. Do you view the market as a garden or a forest, right? The garden is the gardener chooses what is and is not there. The forest, nature chooses. Okay, And so, you know, what do people not want? What do people need? What works better? What, you know, what is technology doing? That doesn't mean you don't have someone watching over to capture the poachers, right? So is the CFPB to be a gardener or a forest ranger? Still, like I said, workshopping it. Um, so, you <laughs> yeah. know, you heard it here, folks. Yeah, yeah. So, like, and if, if there's a, there is a positive vision of an active CFPB as Forest Ranger, where like, and like, you know, if I'm Mulvaney and I'm not, and no one asks me, I go to my enforcement folks and I like, look, find me a fraud, like an out and out fraud, not some edge case, geez, if we squint, a fraud. And I want their head as an ashtray metaphorically Uh, (laughs) thank you for clarifying yeah yeah well the cfpb doesn't have that much power uh yet so uh yeah like going like that that i think that that that's a way to do it right where you're like look there is a role for a cfpb but it's not to substitute its judgment for that of the consumer
2: here's a thanksgiving day conversation i've had with folks outside of washington to understand the cfpb that i hope think clarifies the debate So first we talk about you think there should be a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Everybody at the table says, yes, of course there should be. And I say, should they have the power to go after abusive products? And they say, yes, of course it should be. And I say, okay, now I've got you. What if I were to tell you that one of their big abusive cases, the use of solely their new abusive authority, was a case in which they said, you included a term in the contract. That term was not on page one. It was on page 100 of the contract. Therefore, it's abusive because it was not on page one. They said, that's absurd. How An agency can't do that. And I say, oh, but they can. And that's CFPB overreach.
0: That is a great point. And also- uh, remind me never to have dinner with you, J.W., yeah, as lively well, as that conversation topic sounds. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry.
2: I talk FinRate a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do. Uh, to J.W.'s point, though, I um, I remember years ago there was a case that, and I don't remember all the details of it, but it related to potholes that were not filled in a community, and I had never seen essentially financial regulator go after potholes. And I had thought, well, You know, this might be overreach, but also uh, it could be an opportunity for all of us to have our potholes filled. So I really didn't know from a (laughs) consumer standpoint, uh, you know, if this is necessarily overreach or beneficial. But it is sort of that moment of why are you guys looking at this when you have like Wells Fargo where there was activities going on for years, you know, and it it now just came to light. Yeah,
2: and and they they missed the boat there. OCC (laughs) was ready to levy an $85 million fine. And they came in, they said, oh, uh, we want a $100 million fine. And the only thing I can see for why they chose that number is that it was a nice round number that was bigger than the OCC's fine. That's it. They missed the boat on that.
0: I'm glad you brought us back to the OCC because I did promise uh, that we would get back to Volcker, uh, if only briefly. So I just another jump ball, uh, since I know it's been raised. Uh, The Volcker rule is kind of one of the other big Dodd-Frank reforms that's been targeted in the past. There's been reform legislation proposed. A lot of it is in the agency's hands. Want to get the panel's thoughts? Anybody have views on what regulators should be doing with Volcker? Is it fine as is? Should it go? Should it be reformed?
2: It's a bad idea. But it's going to take a long time to change statutorily. I mean, I, there's just no pathway anytime in the near future. But right now, banks don't want to engage in prop trading anyway because of the capital requirements that would apply to them under under the Dodd Frank rules. So, and by prop trading, uh,
0: you mean proprietary trading, which making the their local own bets. rule Prevented.
2: The underlying logic is flawed. the The underlying logic there is that banks get into more trouble when they trade securities than when they make loans. That's completely idiotic. I'm sorry. There's no other way to describe it. Either way, you can be exposed to bubbles in real estate and they can take your bank down. Making traditional bread and butter loans of you know 30 years and either holding them or selling them to somebody else and getting a piece of that portfolio. Anyway, they're not systemically less or more risky than the other. They're both about risk. Banks manage risk. They take risk and they try to manage that risk. That's what they do. And post-crisis, the ability of banks to do some trading and trading... Desks to do some banking was helpful because we could get banks to buy failed investment banks. We can get investment banks to buy failed commercial banks. So it's a crazy idea. It's going to take forever to change. It might be with us forever. I'm going to be teaching banking law into my 90s. I'll probably be teaching Volcker then. (laughs) But in the short term, we can make some small fixes. I think Randy Quarles is the guy to do it. The new vice chairman of the Fed for supervision. He's leading the charge. Uh, It's going to be about getting the agencies to at least coordinate better and maybe picking a lead agency that says, look, this is how we see this, and then the other four fall into line.
3: Nothing real to add to that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No the thoughts on Volcker then. Uh, I'll I'll just kind of throw out a freebie here for everyone. We've hit on a lot of different topics. We've talked about discretion, rule of law. We've talked about the relationship between the CPB and the states, talked a little bit about the Volcker rule. Whether it's Congress or the agencies, you're all experts in this field, What would you, yes, even you, Brian, uh, what would you advise if a congressional staffer or regulatory staffer came to you, maybe over a beer and said, you know, we've got after this Crapo bill thing, we've got no idea where we're going next. What should policymakers think about as the next big target? Whatever they do with it, how would you help them identify the next priority?
3: So the thing I would ask them to look to is what is going to increase Innovation and competition in the market for financial services because innovation and competition and, and entry, right? Like one thing we haven't really talked about is like the number of community banks and all that. And, you know, but like how do you get more competition and more different competition into the space? Because that's going to ultimately be protective and beneficial to consumers. And, you know, what what matters is the consumer being able to at, fulfill their needs in the best way possible. And that's what our you know, sort of North Star should be.
2: Yeah, I would add to, to the points about innovation and competition, I would add a related point to that, which is the importance of heterogeneity and diversification in our regulatory approach. By that, I mean, right now, the main problem with our regulatory approach is uh, our financial intermediaries fund themselves in the same way. They invest in the same stuff. Regulators encourage it. And that just means that when they fail, they all fail at the same time. That's a terrible way to design a financial system. Much better approach is they all find themselves in different ways. They buy different kinds of stuff. They compete with each other. And by the way, a part of this discussion, we haven't talked about safety net yet, but the more you repeal the safety net, the more you get market discipline. Market discipline is a good thing. That's what we talk about a lot at the Mercatus Center. So I would say heterogeneity, this is a principle embodied in Jeb Henchling's Financial Choice Act, which creates a new approach to bank regulation that's that's that has strong capital. It's embodied in the fintech competition stuff Brian's been talking about. Heterogeneity and just diversifying your your you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. We put all our eggs at all our eggs in the
0: Basel basket, basically.
2: And it's terrible. And it's gonna kill us at some point in the next couple of
0: decades. So thank you for that cheery note, JW. Yep.
1: I'm going to pick a heated topic that everybody talks about, but it's never fixed. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, housing finance reform. Ooh. I mean, we do we have another <laughs> hour? <laughs> I'm going to keep you all here. Somebody pick up a six-pack. Yeah, call Peter Wallison too. <laughs> Every, everyone has something to say about it, uh, but it does – it feels sort of like that silent ticking time bomb. And if we can actually fix it and address it faster, we're not going to run into a, a complete crash like we have in the past. But I just don't have a lot of faith, but I'd love to really get down down in the weeds with whoever it is to try and make these decisions and agree a lot faster.
0: See, this is what I like about getting a group of financial regulatory policy experts together is you're all so optimistic about the future. Uh, and I get to hear about all the ticking time bombs and the ways in which the economy is going to be destroyed within the next decade or two. Uh,
2: just buy Bitcoin. That's the key. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> That's, it's not That's an official street. endorsement.
2: No.
3: That's not investment advice, people. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no. Well, I am going to close this out here, but I want to thank you guys for, for joining me, uh, for having a great conversation. And uh, if I can try to pull together some... Some of the some of the things that we talked about I will uh, raise my beverage in a toast and say here's to financial innovation competition and access maybe can we all agree with that?
2: Here here we can.
0: Great. Since that does it for today uh, I will note if you're interested in the latest on the Crapo bill that we mentioned at the beginning, I'd encourage you to check out JW's recent piece on the bridge. It's a nice summary of what's in the bill. Uh, JW where can uh, folks find other work of yours online the easiest? Mercatus.org, SSRN. Great. And Brian, where should folks go to find your latest takes on barbecue and banking?
3: I'm on Twitter at at Though I've been trying to cut back for Lent, not entirely successfully.
0: And Rachel, for our listeners who want to read more of your reporting, what's the easiest way for them to find it?
1: Uh, You could go to American Banker's website or follow me on Twitter at Rachel Witkowski.
0: And as always, I'm eager to hear from you, our listeners. Please email me your questions, comments, complaints, and or episode ideas at creece at mercatus.gmu.edu or find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese. Thanks for listening.